always makes you feel welcome when you stand up to preach and the first thing that happens, baby cries. <laughs> I guess she knows more than a lot of us. Uh, she knows what's in store. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you so much. It's always good to see your smiling faces and thank you for coming back tonight. We are continuing our study of some of the great characters of Scripture. And tonight we turn our attention to James and John. Last week in our study we talked about Peter. And Peter, James, and John formed really an inner three among their association or in their association with Jesus. They were an inner three circle of men that confided in Jesus. They had a very close relationship to Him. And so we're going to look at their life in just a moment or two and we'll note some things about their lives. Before, I do, before we do so, let me just take this opportunity again to welcome those who are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back. Thank you for coming our way. We are grateful for the number of visitors that come our way each and every week. It might be that you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you come and be a part of the work here. We've got a lot of great things going on. I know next weekend is LADS. A lot of preparation's been, well, a lot of preparation has taken place, a lot of work. And we appreciate so much the young people that are involved and the parents that have been monitoring and working with them to get them ready to make presentations. I know they'll do a great job, and so we appreciate, we appreciate all the great work that's taken place thus far. Tonight, let's think for a minute or two about the Sons of Thunder, James and John. James and John, of course, the Sons of Zebedee. And there are some interesting things about their lives that I want to call attention to tonight. I want to begin by, first of all, calling attention to the call of James and John. Now, you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called Peter and Andrew. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, and I would imagine they had an enterprising business. I would take it that they were very successful in their endeavors. And so Jesus initially called Philip, or rather, initially called Peter and Andrew. And then, according to Matthew's account, he set his sights on James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These men, like Peter and Andrew, had great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember over in the book of Acts in chapter 4, when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin council. The Bible tells us in verse 13 that the council members marveled at Peter and John because they were untrained men, they were uneducated men. They had not been privileged to sit at the feet of some esteemed rabbi. They had not been at the feet of a Gamaliel nor had they been at the feet of a Nicodemus. Nicodemus identified by Jesus in John chapter 3 as the teacher of Israel. And yet the council recognized that these men had been with Jesus. Now by this time the church is up and running. Imagine if you can spending three or three and a half years with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John spent some very intimate moments with the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw the Lord Jesus at work. 
They listened to him over and over again as he taught the wonderful words of life. They had the opportunity to see the great miracles that he performed time and again. And you can go back and look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there are some 30 specific miracles recorded by the inspired writers concerning the work of Jesus, the Son of God. All of those miracles attested to His deity or His sonship. But in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible tells us that when Jesus called these two brothers, the text says that immediately they left their boat and their father and followed Him. I think that's significant. Now with regard to Peter and Andrew, the text says immediately they left their nets and followed Him. But with regard to these two men, they left their boat, their father, and they followed Jesus. I think there's a lesson there. And the lesson is sometimes family relationships can encroach upon our service to the Lord. There are some, sadly, that refuse to obey the truth of the gospel of Christ, not because they don't see it, not because they do not understand the simplicity of what the New Testament teaches, but rather because of family relationships. You remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. In Luke 14, when Jesus talked about the importance of discipleship, He said, If any man come to me and hate not, love less, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the Lord's not saying there, that we're not to honor, respect, and love our parents. But I think what he is saying is that when it comes to serving him, becoming a part of his kingdom, nothing can take precedence over his will and his ways. And so when Matthew tells us that James and John left their boat, their father, and they followed him, that's significant. And don't you think it's possible that they had a thriving fishing business? And so these brothers walked away from that business to serve the Lord. Years ago when, well, I had already made the decision that I wanted to preach. And I remember on Easter Sunday, a fellow going forward, and the preacher stood in the pulpit, or stood before the assembly on that day, and he said, we have a man that's come forward today, hasn't been to church in five years, and wants to be restored. I did not know that brother at this time, but I later came to know him. He and I became great friends. And at that point in time in his life, he had a thriving business with his father and brother. They owned a burglar alarm company in Chattanooga. And they were doing quite well. Matter of fact, he had a house. He'd already bought a house. Life was good. He had money. Had everything he needed. And over the course of a very short period of time, he made the decision 
to walk away from his family business and become a gospel preacher. He'd been preaching ever since. But he made the decision to walk away from financial freedom, success in the business world, to serve the Lord. And I suspect that James and John, they walked away from a lucrative business to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the lesson there for us, we must not let anything impede our service to God. Nothing can come between us and the Lord. We've got to have rock-solid faith in the Lord, and we've got to be willing to follow Him, come what may. And by the way, let me just inject this. When it comes to our faith, the faith that we develop must ultimately become our own. We've got to take ownership of our faith. You remember, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and Timothy was his own son in the faith. And Paul recounted the genuine faith that dwelt first in his grandmother, Lois, and then in his mother, Eunice, and then he went on to say, and I am persuaded is in you also. So we've got to develop rock-solid faith in the Lord and be willing to follow Him come what may. And there are a lot of adversities and trials and tribulations that we face in this life. And sometimes those things can cause us to deviate from serving the Lord. But if we maintain our faith and fidelity in the Lord, then the reward will be worth it, won't it? So, first and foremost, the call of these men. But then, secondly, let's talk about for a moment or two the confusion of James and John. I think these were good men. And when you look at the record, it's obvious that the apostles as a whole misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of Almighty God. Now, it wasn't because the prophets hadn't foretold of the coming of the Messiah and His kingdom. And that kingdom was to be spiritual in nature. You remember Jesus said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation in Luke 17. The kingdom would be a spiritual entity. And Jesus would say that we're in the kingdom and the kingdom is in us. But nonetheless, one of the problems that arose among the apostles, the disciples, they began jockeying for position in the kingdom of God. So first of all, let's talk for a minute or two about their misplaced ambition. And I want to direct your attention to the book of Mark. And note if you would, first of all, in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, note verse 33. The text says that when they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, that is Jesus, he asked them, What was it you discussed or disputed among yourselves on the road? Verse 34, But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed or discussed among themselves who would be the greatest. So, there was positioning going on among the apostles, and that would have included James and John. They're wanting to be deemed the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
Look over in chapter, look over in chapter 10, verse 35. In verse 35, the passage that Jordan read a moment ago, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus. And they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? And they said, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, when you come in your kingdom. Again, you got to understand, they're thinking about a physical kingdom, aren't they? They're not thinking about a spiritual entity. And what they want is to be in on the ground floor when the kingdom is established. They want positions of honor. One wants to sit on one hand, the other on the other side. They want to be noted for their greatness in the kingdom. And so, listen to what Jesus said. You do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we can. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink of the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you'll be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared. Now look at verse 41. In verse 41, Mark said, When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. I don't know why they got so upset. They all wanted the same thing, didn't they? They all wanted a position. They all were looking to be esteemed as great in the kingdom of God. They wanted notoriety. And so, in verse 42, Jesus called to himself, called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over you. Yet it shall not be so among you. Now listen to this. Jesus here taps in to true greatness in His kingdom. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. You remember before Jesus went to the cross over in John 13? We have a record of Jesus taking a basin of water and a towel and stooping down and washing the disciples' feet. Why did He do that? Why would the Lord Jesus stoop to such a menial task? Could I say to you, because He was trying to impress upon them the importance of being a servant in the kingdom. And really, that's the lesson for us. To recognize that greatness in the kingdom of God is not about having some great name in the brotherhood, but rather it's about day in, day out, serving the Lord. That's how Jesus defined greatness. And so in verse 44, He said, Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave or servant of all. And then verse 45, Jesus holds before them a great example. Listen to what he said. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus here is saying, you want to know what service is all about? Then look at my life. Wasn't it Paul in Philippians chapter 2 
who said, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, listen to him, taking the form of a servant. Christianity is about servanthood. It's about learning to serve the Lord and other people. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus talks about that great and final day, you remember He said, Inasmuch as you did it unto one of these least of my brethren, you did it unto me. When you served other people, Jesus said, You're in effect serving me. So it's all about servanthood. Now, look over in the book of Luke. Look at Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 46, another parallel passage. Luke said, A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Again, this idea of greatness in the kingdom of God. They wanted to be somebody in God's kingdom. So in verse 47, Luke said, And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set, and set him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. I think about the humility of a child and the willingness of a child to lean upon his parents and to look to his parents or her parents for guidance, instruction, etc. And then look at verse 51. First, we think about their misplaced ambition. I mentioned a moment ago that the disciples, the apostles, they didn't necessarily understand the concept of the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. That's evident because following the death of Jesus... His resurrection and prior to ascending to heaven. You remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had shown Himself to be alive, as Luke said, by many infallible proofs being seen of them over the space of 40 days. And so the apostles then asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So again, they're still thinking about a material kingdom. And yet we know that on Pentecost Day, the kingdom of God came with power, but it was a spiritual institution, wasn't it? So when people obeyed the gospel, and according to Acts chapter 2, when they obeyed the gospel, God put them in that kingdom. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, people are delivered out of the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So now look at verse 51. In verse 51, here's what the text says. It came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus here recognizes, and this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked about going to Jerusalem, suffering many things of the chief priests, elders, and scribes, being killed and raised again the third day. The Lord Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem for the purpose of being put to death, where He would later ascend to heaven to be seated at the right hand of Almighty God. 
And so Luke said he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. So he sends people out to make things ready for his arrival. He's in Galilee. He's going to Jerusalem. He'd be going from north to south. And he's going to, he's going to travel through Samaritan territory. But look at verse 53. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now you remember in John chapter 4, John said that the Jews had no dealings with, with the Samaritans. When Jews traveled from north to south on their way to Jerusalem, the Samaritan people didn't like it. The Samaritans, they believed that the place of worship was Mount Gerizim. And in John chapter 4, when Jesus had a conversation with the woman at the well, you remember she said that their father said in this mountain they were to worship. That was Mount Gerizim. But you say Jerusalem is where people ought to worship. Well, Jerusalem was the right place to worship. So the Samaritans were not receptive. Somewhat different from John 4, when Jesus spoke to that woman at the well, at Sychar, not only was she influenced for good, but she went back and told her people about the Christ. Jesus spent some two days among them, and they believed in Him. So there were many Samaritans that were receptive of the Christ, but on this occasion, you have a group of Samaritans that were not receptive. And so look at verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now you can go back and look at 2 Kings chapter 1. When Elijah the prophet called fire down upon some 150 people, Isaiah was the king, he had fallen through the lattice in one of his rooms, apparently injured greatly, sent messengers to inquire of a pagan god whether or not he was going to live. So when the messengers went on their way, they were met by Elijah. And as a result of that, he called fire down from heaven. This says something to me about the zeal of these two men. They were fiery. They had some fire in their bones, didn't they? Now, misplaced as it was, they still had some fire and zeal. And the Bible says in verse 55 that Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You ever had a similar attitude toward people? In other words, you'd just like to zap them. You know, when I look around at some of the things that are going on in our country, some of the people that are in leadership positions, my first impulse is, man, I'd like to just get them. But that's not right, is it? It's not the right spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying to James and John. Listen again to what he said. Look at verse 56. 
The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Do you recall in John chapter 3 when Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life? For God sent not the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Listen, the world was already condemned. The world was already under condemnation because of sin. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but rather His purpose in coming to earth was to save. And so even though James and John had a lot of zeal, and, and I think that in their own way, they are personally offended because these people weren't receptive to the Christ. And so they were ready to call fire from heaven down and zap them. And Jesus said, you've got to understand, that's not how we do things. And I think we have to understand the same thing. That's not how we handle things. There are a lot of folks in our world today, they're misguided, they're misinformed. They have no concept of right or wrong, as hard as that may be to believe. And even though the tendency might be to want to zap them, we got to understand that the goal of Almighty God is salvation, isn't it? Didn't Peter say that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? And didn't Paul say that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? And so what we have to do is to have an evangelistic spirit. And to recognize that the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, we are in a spiritual kingdom. And God the Father is on His throne. And Jesus is our King. And we're a part of the kingdom. And to advance the kingdom of Christ is to preach and teach the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. And when that gospel falls on honest and good hearts, it will yield fruit. There's a third thing I want to share with you in our study. This has to do with the courage of James and John. These men were courageous. They were bold and brave. When you look at Acts chapter 2 and begin making your way through the book of Acts, what stands out to you? Courage, conviction consecration to Almighty God. These men were willing to do whatever it took to advance God's cause. These guys were under the gun. You remember Jesus when He talked about some of the attributes that were to be a part of His disciples in Matthew chapter 5? In Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you, persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These men some of whom paid the ultimate price 
for their willingness to follow the Lord. So, with that in mind, look over in Acts chapter 4. First, let's think about the boldness of John. Peter and John, as you well know, they've healed a man at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. They are being interrogated according to Luke in chapter 4. The text says in chapter 4, verse 2, that the people were greatly disturbed. Why? Because they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day. Then in the following verses, this interrogation takes place. And they want to know by what name, what authority have you healed this man? They acknowledge, look, we did it by the power of Christ. In verse 12, the text says, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized they had been with Jesus. Now drop down, look at verse 16. They said among themselves, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them, commanded them not to speak nor teach in the name of Jesus. In verse 19, the Bible says, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Listen, that's courage. That's conviction. That's consecration. The text goes on to say that after being released, they went back, rehearsed these events with their fellow comrades in Christ, and then they began to pray to Almighty God. Look at verse 29. They prayed, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Look at verse 31. In verse 31, the latter part of the verse, the text says, And they spoke the word of God with boldness. I suspect that these men were bold in their defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ until they laid their armor to the side, until they stepped out into eternity. So the boldness of John, and I can only imagine how bold James was as well. But then turn over to chapter 12. In chapter 12, the record tells us Something about the bravery of James. In verse 1, the Bible says, About that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was martyred for the cause of Christ, wasn't he? Gave his life for the advancement of the cause of Christ. Would you die for your faith? Would you be bold in your defense of the gospel? Would you have the kind of bravery that would say, in the face of death, I will not recant. I will not back up. You remember what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2? 
be faithful unto death. That is, be faithful even in the face of death. Wasn't it Jesus who taught in Matthew chapter 10? He told the apostles, the disciples, they were not to fear those who can destroy the body. He said, but afterward cannot kill the soul. But he said, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell in Gehenna. These men, listen, they were bold and they were brave. In closing, I want to just make one final observation very quickly. I want to encourage you over the next few days to go back and reread the crucifixion. It's interesting to me that as Jesus was dying for the sins of the human family, that he placed the custodial care of his own mother in the hands of whom? You remember? John. Why do you think he did that? He had brothers, didn't he? Does that not say something about the Lord's confidence in John the Apostle? And that close connection. You know what it says to me in many ways is that in Christ we can develop relationships that are far deeper than biological ties. Do you believe that? That there is a closeness within the body of Christ in many respects that is unparalleled. Peter talked about being people of like precious faith. So Jesus placed His own mother's care in the hands of one of His great disciples. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, I encourage you, come to Christ. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You want a good life? It's in Christ. You want a better life? It's in Christ. You want to live forever? It's in Christ. What do you need to do? Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Respond to the gospel of Christ. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into Christ. He'll put you in the church. You'll enjoy all spiritual blessings, and if you're faithful until death, you can hear Him say one day, well done. Well done. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, could we encourage you? Could we encourage you to come home? We would be happy to pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon us. We stand and sing.